This is the Portland Real Estate Podcast, your number one place for anything you need to know about the Portland real estate market, along with in-depth interviews from our local real estate industry experts. Now, without further ado, here are our hosts, Tucker Merrihue from TTM Development Company and Steve Nassar from Premier Property Group. All right, everybody, welcome to episode number 25 of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. We are back again this week. I'm your host, Tucker Merrihue. I'm here with my co-host in our virtual studio, Steve Nassar. What's going on, Steve-o? Hey, Tucker, good to be back on the show. I am feeling much, much better than last week, even though I, I was seeing and hearing that I was not alone. A lot of people were feeling under the weather, had some kind of flu bug or sickness or cold of some sort, but all's good and excited to be back on the show. Good deal. Yeah, it's, uh, it's always nice to shake that sickness, that's for sure. Jeff, I think our guest last week was a little sick as well, so I'm sure he's probably feeling better this week too. So good to, good to have you back in, in full steam here. But uh, So hey, this week we don't have a guest. But we're going to talk about a few things, you know, but we'll kick it off as we always do with kind of what's going on in the trenches, what's going on in the real estate business, both from your side of the business and mine. So why don't you uh, take us down what's going on in Steve Nassar land and uh, whether it be broker or agent land this past week. Or both. <laughs> or both. Yeah. So here we go. So on the brokerage level, we had a really cool event yesterday at the Home Builders Association we pretty frequently will get that building. It holds a nice crowd of people. I, I think it can actually hold up to 160 plus. We actually filled it out yesterday. I, I know we had well into the hundreds. Was that the um, event that you'd mentioned on the show previously? So No, no. That one's coming up. Okay. That one is February 24th, and that one is about team building. That's right. And it's all about the various types of teams that a broker can have set up. It's about different ways to compensate team members. It's about the different ways that they function, operate, whether it's somebody thinking about being on a team, starting their own team, running a team, or somebody that has a team of one but just is curious about the procedural back end of a team, that's going to be a really cool event as well. This one was a little different one. I hosted this one along with our other owner, Kelly Ock, and this one was about working with sellers who are also buyers in a low inventory market. And the reality of it is, and, and what we really focused on, was that it's just such a different animal. When you're working with someone, and, and again, it can be confusing because I'm calling them sellers, but they're also buyers. So when you're working with a client that's doing both, they're going to sell us, but they're also going to buy another one. You know, normally when you're working with someone who's just a seller, their primary objective, and, and let me give you a scenario where somebody's just a seller. They're going to sell and they're going to rent or they're going to sell and they're moving out of the area, okay? Their primary objective is a quick sale for top dollar. And how you approach that listing appointment and that person is all about that. Hey, here's the marketing we're going to do. Here's the innovative and comprehensive system we're going to engage to ensure you get maximum exposure, give you the most chance of offers so that you can achieve your objective, which is a quick sale for top dollar. When you're working with a seller who is going into the buyer pool as well, it's important to understand that that objective, while that is still out there to some extent, they're oftentimes very concerned about the limited inventory out there. And while we as realtors can get incredibly excited when we hear we have a potential listing, we have to acknowledge the nervousness of this person who is not sure where they're going to go. And we talked about some different strategies and 
the different options available to these people to help them build up that confidence in order to address these issues. You know, they're they're going down the path of, hey, I, I live in this house, and I want to live in that one. There's really four different major options they could take. We broke them out into self first, and that's going to be typically speaking most sellers that we work with. They're, they need the equity out of their house. They don't qualify for two homes. So those would be the sell first, then buy. You do have the ones that can buy first. That's another option. Even though there is no perfect process, that one tends to be the, the least stressful. When, when a seller is fortunate enough to be able to have the down payment outside of their property, they do qualify for two mortgages and they are able to comfortably buy a house and then close on it and then transition to some extent into it and then market and sell their other house. We talked about contingent offers, the challenges of those in this market, but we also talked about some strategies that can help those get through. You know, little things like, you know, if you make a contingent offer, you don't have to in the offer state that you are not going to do any inspections or put any earnest money down until your house is pending. If you want to show the listing side and the seller that you're going to be pot committed and, and going to be really um, motivated to continue forward with this transaction, you can say we're going to order our inspections right away, regardless of the fact that our house isn't pending sale yet. You know, and one of the we things. We talked a little bit about um, clients that also just, and there are these ones out there. I mean, and it's important that you understand the situation and the, the nuances of what's going on with them. There are some that they just need to sell and rent for a while, be it temporary housing or an actual long term rental and wait for the right property. And those tend to be the ones who are looking for something incredibly specific, something that's not readily out there. And the reality is if they wait for that while they're not on the market, chances are when that purpose comes, it's going to go pending before they have a chance to do anything with there. Again, we talked about this was the, the big takeaway is it's not one size fits all. You can't approach a client who has a house and wants to sell it and buy another and you can't approach them all with the same one-size-fits-all strategy. You have to acknowledge the different options and tailor and work with them to identify and be best for them. And working with those clients, being able to advise them as the expert of that transition will get you those clients. Whereas with a lot of other clients who are, again, just selling and moving out of the area, you can talk about your marketing and you can really win them over with that. But with these clients who are nervous about the process and nervous about the next house they're going to move into, it's almost the opposite. If you're explaining to them how fast you're going to sell their house, you can almost scare them away. So you really have to tailor your approach to that. On the broker side, I had a little post on Masters talking about – a lot of people are in a roommate situation with a buddy. But this is just a guy he, he found you know on, online, probably put an ad on Craigslist, found a roommate, came in. He told me, he said, the roommate's not thrilled that I'm selling. He, he's pretty comfortable here in the house. So how much notice do I need to give him? And I said, well, actually, we're in the city of Portland here. There have been some changes to the laws about that. And there are scenarios where that would be a 90-day notice required. Now, I wasn't sure how that worked out with roommates within the same house as the owner-seller. So I posted that to Masters, and an attorney, our in-house attorney, Richard Mario, even posted on that and said, Basically, be careful here because, again, at best, that's murky, and it's probably better to be safe than sorry. So my recommendation to them, and I'm still kind of researching this, and I want to just double-check myself, but my recommendation is like, look, incentivize this tenant to agree in writing to vacate the premises. So 
The good news is this was a very close in southeast Portland home. It was in the Clinton, just north of Brooklyn, actually. As we were comping it out, we are looking at some of the Brooklyn area. Mm -hmm. He's going to do very well. He was very, very happy with the comps. He was very happy, as was I, with how fast inventory is moving or how little inventory there is and how fast homes are moving. And most of them were going way over asking price. So he was very happy about how he was going to do. And I said, look, just share a little of the wealth with your tenant. Whatever that number is, I don't know if it's 500 bucks, 1,000 bucks, whatever the case, you know, sit them down, have a conversation, say, you know, I'd like to get this on the market. I'd like to get it sold. If I give you 45 days, you know, and maybe free rent or 500 bucks, can I get you to just agree in writing that you're good with that? And so that seems to be a good way to approach it. But in most people in that situation, I think you can work through that. I guess there could be that one-offs person that just doesn't want to be compliant and doesn't want to work with you. And then maybe you do have to wait the true 90 days. But I think there's still going to be more to be learned about how some of these nuances work with these situations. Yeah, especially with roommates because you know, generally, I mean, some people live with total strangers. I know you've had roommates. I've had roommates in the past. I wouldn't anticipate there'd be issues. It'd be more about the friendship and just making sure that you're not you know, kicking them to the curb without a place to go. You kind of have to almost help them plan sometimes. But either way, interesting posts nonetheless. I'm sure there's more kind of random Craigslist type roommate situations as you get closer into Portland because you know, it's just a little different type of style of living as compared to out in the, you know, the burbs. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, um, but yeah, that area is the uh, hot zone for sure. So I'm sure you'll have no problem selling that listing. That's for sure. Yeah, no, it's it's a good one to have. <laughs> cool. Well, it sounds like you got a lot of stuff going on. That's really cool that you have meetings at the uh, HBA, and uh, I think that one later on this month that you're hosting is actually going to be a really good one. I think I would I would strongly suggest people to go check that out if you're you know on the realtor side of the business for sure. All right, so we're going to jump into kind of what's been going on with me this past week. Obviously, we've got a lot of stuff going on construction-related, but I wanted to focus on two things that uh, were topics that kind of came up over the course of the past week as we were kind of touring around town, checking out projects, checking out properties, because we're always looking to buy. And so we had an interaction with one particular seller that brings me to one point, and then we kind of drove around Portland, and that'll take me to my other. But I want to start with the interaction and the appointment I had with a seller that was in kind of deeper southeast Portland. And so this individual, he's got an older house, kind of a smaller little house. They haven't taken much care of it. It's been passed down through his, his folks to now to him. They've had renters in it for a long time. And it was on about an acre in uh, southeast Portland, deeper southeast, like out in the numbers, I guess, is what they call it these days. Uh, it was like and southeast 135th. And so it was a big lot. And the structure on it currently is pretty beat up. It would be a heavy, heavy fixer. But it also had like a really shoddy foundation. I don't think a lender would actually lend on it. It had a lot of dry rot, a lot of things like that. And so he understood that the house didn't have a ton of redeeming factors. But he thought the land was great. And I agree with him. It was a nice big piece of land. And this is one thing that Metro and our urban growth boundary, they look at things like this and they say, well, look, there's an acre of land on southeast 135th and Burnside. It's in a neighborhood. It could be redeveloped. There should be more houses there to accommodate the more and more people that are wanting to live in Portland or move to Portland. Well, in theory, yes, that sounds great. But the problem is, and, and this particular seller didn't realize this, you know, when you partition a bigger property like that, any additional lot that's partitioned, in order to build a house on those newly partitioned lot or lots from you know a bigger property breaking them up into smaller properties or smaller lots that then you build multiple houses on, each new lot that's created, it's going to cost you between forty and $50,000 all in for just the building permit. 
That's to build a new home. So we'll call it on average $45,000. That's what it's going to cost you or thereabouts here in the city of Portland. So the cost to build a new home in, let's call it Alameda Ridge and in Dunthorpe versus Southeast Portland, deep Southeast, the building permit is virtually the same price, about $45,000. So you can understand now why when you're in these neighborhoods that are, they're trying to gentrify, they're trying to get better. We're trying to increase density with these bigger lots that could, you know, we're not talking super high density housing, but we're talking putting more houses on bigger lots, like one acre lots as you get farther out in the Southeast. It just doesn't pencil because you have to essentially buy the dirt for almost nothing. And people don't want to give their property away because that's what they feel like they're doing. And so at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself, what is the value being provided to us as, as Portlanders by having such ridiculously high costs for our building permits? And the only people that it's not really helping anybody because it's hurting the, the landowner, the people that own the land, because they don't want to give it away. And if they do end up selling it, they have to sell it for a price that makes it make sense to redevelop and build and partition it and build houses. And then on the other end, you know, you're only able to build in neighborhoods where you can pass that cost on enough to the end buyer to make it pencil so there's a margin in it for a builder to build. That's why the majority of the building that you see, well, the vast majority, is in the mid to higher end neighborhoods of Portland because those are the only price points that can absorb such an insanely high price as far as the building permits go. That's crazy, Tucker. I didn't realize that. That just is clearly to me a flaw in the system. Somehow, it needs to be proportionate to the price of the finished home. I don't know how exactly they'd go about doing that, but there's ways to estimate. I mean, there's ways to shoot. I mean, Zillow does it with his estimate. Hey, here's what you know a good house in this neighborhood is going to go for. So why can't it be a percentage of that? I don't know. It's a good question. I, the system's broken, of course. but Sure, and, and to your point, that may require raising the costs on some of the nice areas like Dunthorpe and, and some of those areas that can absorb it. I mean, if, if say, the figure is 10% of the finished estimated value, you know, if it's a $500,000 house, then maybe 50000 or 45000 is right. If it's going to be a million-dollar house, maybe it needs to be a little bit more. And if it's going to be a $300,000 house, it needs to be a little bit less. But interesting. Yeah, and the other thing, too, to think about here, Steve, is that so when you're creating these newly partitioned lots and these new houses – what else are we doing for our community tax-wise or, or revenue-wise, right? We're creating a new property tax on a new house that's a forever tax, right? So we're mm -hmm. creating a ton of new revenue for the county that that property is in. And then in addition to that, now you have city water, city sewer. You have a forever continuity customer for the city for their utilities. So to charge somebody an insane amount of money to then have a forever revenue generator where you're already charging them an insane amount of money. It's just crazy. And as you know, the problem is, is once you give government a certain amount of money, it's very difficult to dial that back. And, you know, I've consulted with people all over the country that are building new construction in all the different metro markets. And I can tell you, we are as expensive as anywhere in the country. It's cheaper to get a building permit in San Diego than it is in Portland, Oregon, which is insane. That is insane. That so is insane. that's the first problem that I've noticed. And I think that, you know, just a lot of people aren't aware of and it really does affect value because, you know, at the end of the day, if you have a nice big piece of property and it's in deeper southeast Portland, I mean, the only people getting hurt by this are, well, it's number one, the neighborhood because the neighborhood's going to be very, very slow to gentrify. But number two is the property owners that own these big pieces of property that could be better suited for more houses. It just doesn't pencil to redevelop them. It hurts the buyers, too, because that's getting baked into the prices. Exactly. And that puts a squeeze on inventory, right? Which yeah. causes issues for everybody, as we've seen. So I think it's a topic that people really need to focus in on. 
and really just be aware of because it's a big problem here and it's going to continue to be a problem in my opinion. Yeah, I can see why. Yeah. And the second issue, so we went from that appointment and we drove, this was the same day and it was just kind of a wham bam thing. So that's why I'm talking about it on the show. But we went from deep southeast, we went all the way up to North Portland, my favorite part of Portland, as we've talked about many times on the show. But we drove I-84 all the way through downtown and then, you know, on up towards, you know, as you'd go up to Vancouver, past the Rose Garden. Well, you know, I've driven that route, I don't know, maybe once or twice a week or more for the last six or seven years as we've been renovating and building houses through Portland. And I can tell you, over the last two years, it's changed a lot. And I'm not talking about traffic. I'm talking about trash. I'm talking about homeless people. I'm talking about homeless camps, flop areas, whatever it is that people want to say, you know, or whatever they call them, right? We've gotten a discussion about this before with Joe on the show. So uh, we'll try not to offend everybody. But the point is, is that the homeless population here in Portland is getting out of control. And I also noticed this. I went to a Blazer game the other night. And as I went back over the steel bridge down towards where the bus station is down there, there was literally like a hundred tents lined up on the side of the road. I mean, it was crazy. And then as you, you know, you drive from my office across the Ross Island and you go towards uh, 224 to head to Milwaukee, there's, you know, homeless camps sprung up all over the sides of the road in the closer in Southeast neighborhoods, kind of probably right where you took that listing that you're talking about with the roommate situation. I bet there's, uh, you know, a homeless camp or two not too far from any house in that area. And it's just getting a little ridiculous. I feel like we're on the edge of this being a major, major problem. And we're in the middle of winter right now. I mean, wait till summer hits, right? I mean, we're in the rainy season. Yeah, I did a little research on this. We talked about it before the show, and I pulled up one article said Oregon's homeless population rose by nearly 9% over the last year. I mean, that is just an astronomical percentage. It really is. It did say it seems to be a West Coast problem for whatever reason. It mentioned that nationwide homelessness fell by about 2%, but Washington saw an uptick of 5.3%. California's population, homeless population that is, grew by 1.6%. So, yeah, I mean, Portland is leading the pack there for sure. And we've talked in the past about just some of the the contributing factors is just that Portland in general has a very accommodating attitude toward homelessness. You know, the weather's fairly mild. We've got a lot of bridges. There's a lot of homeless shelters and outreach for them, which is wonderful in many ways. But clearly there's a backlash to that in that they're now realizing that as much as they it's almost like you you, you put that out there. And suddenly it's not enough. It brings everybody. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's a good point. There's a, there's actually an individual that's worked for me here in the office for about the last three and a half years who I always like to get his perspective on the matter, but he has always told me that people flock here. There's a lot of homeless that come here, and they come here, and this is a, a it's it's not a great thing to say, but number one is, like you mentioned, people are very lax here. Those that are in you know the, the power positions to make this problem better or worse – They have a very lax outlook on how to deal with it. They don't want to just tell people to leave. But the other reality is is that there's a lot of drugs here and people turn their head. And so if you're in a lax area where the, you know, drugs are pretty easy to get a hold of, and we're not talking about weed, we're talking about the hard stuff, right? It's an area that then people flock to. And I mean, just for example, there was an article that came out today down on the waterfront, one of our most beautiful parts of downtown, they have put these new like syringe drop boxes where you can take your used syringes and drop them off. Now, in theory, that's a great idea, right? Let's get them off the ground or whatever. But it's basically saying, 
it's okay that this happens around here. Here, once you're done shooting up, go drop it in this Dropbox, right? I mean, it's a mm-hmm. horrible thing. I, I get what they're trying to do, but we're taking the most beautiful parts of our city, and again, we're accommodating the homeless to a point that, you know, it's going to erode those really beautiful parts of our city that people actually like to go to, in my opinion. And I think over time, it's really going to just make things worse and worse and worse. And so there was actually another... Um, I don't know if you saw the article. There was a, I won't mention the, the family name, but there's a, a family that's been known to have quite a bit of money in town that bought a building right off of NATO Parkway, right off of uh, Front Street down there. And they're taking the second story of that building right in a very, you know, business district. And they're going to make that second story basically a, a homeless shelter up there. And it just seems to me, I get what they're trying to do, but it just seems like such a terrible idea because now you're creating another mecca in the middle of a business district for a homeless shelter. And then right across the street, you've got a drop box for people's needles. So it's just, you know, I think Portland's got a lot of cleaning up to do. And, you know, I think we're on a very slippery slope right now for a lot of these neighborhoods that there's kind of going to come a point where it's just like people aren't going to want to live there, you know, and they're not going to feel safe. And I know we've gotten into this conversation you know, with uh, a post that was on Masters a while ago about some people that thought it was great that they had homeless people walking by their house and didn't affect their listing that they sold. But the reality is, is that if this keeps going, it will affect a lot of listings and it will mm-hmm. affect a lot of desirability of a lot of areas, in my opinion. Yeah, I fully agree. So those are kind of two of, I think, the bigger issues that, you know, Portland is facing as we move forward. Hopefully, uh, as we get a new mayor, maybe uh, they'll take a stand and come up with some solutions to these problems. But you know, the uh, cost of building permits is insane. We've got to do something about that if we want some of these more outlying neighborhoods to clean up faster. And, um, you know, we want Metro's idea of higher density within the urban growth boundary to actually become a reality. That's going to have to change. And then, uh, you know, we've got to get a better stance on the homeless situation and we got to deal with it in a better way because turning a blind eye to it is just, it's not helping things at all. In fact, it's making things exponentially worse, in my opinion. And I wonder, you know, we talked about two different things when I was talking about what I've done this week. We talked about giving 90-day notice to tenants. I wonder if that, and not wonder, I'm, I'm sure there's a, an element of that that was designed to address the tight rental market and potentially homeless people. And I'm not talking about the, the hardcore homeless people that are career homeless people, but people who maybe are right on the fringe and uh, if that was you know, some of the purpose. So if there are efforts out there trying to be made, but yeah, as you said, it's a slippery slope. It's, it's not an easy thing to navigate. And in my research and in, in looking at this, there was a conference between the mayors of Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and they're all kind of going through this and you know, scratching their heads and going, okay, how do we, how do we address this? And I don't think anyone had any great answers. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, you know, it, the, the, the answers aren't going to be popular. <laughs> they're not going to help with votes. That's why. So That's true. Yeah. That's true. But uh, we're not running for office, or at least uh, not yet. So, you know, yeah, have no, a absolutely. Like, so we can, we, can say, we can say that the real answers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's kind of what's going on with me this week. You know, I felt those were two important things to talk about uh, in terms of actually building houses and, and moving forward. You know, we're cruising along on a couple of uh, projects in Lake Oswego. Uh, we're submitting our plans finally for that big Dunthorpe project that I've talked to you about uh, here very shortly. And we've got some townhomes that we're uh, looking to get our building permits finalized here very shortly. So we're we're moving and grooving. I actually got a new piece of property under contract in Lake Oswego. I might be moving. I might have found a, a forever property for myself. No way. I said that before, but it's a little 
little bit better street. It's a little bit better piece of property. And so we'll see. We, Are you uh, two years into your house now? We will be here very shortly, yeah. Got so it. By the yeah. time, if I built this for myself, it's got an existing, like, really small little house on there now. We could build two houses. If we kept it as a project for the company, we'd probably partition a lot and build two houses. If not, we'd probably just keep it and build one for myself. But I'll keep you posted. We'll see. We'll see. You know, I have to say... I think as a builder, one of the smartest things that builders in general, and, and, and you are a builder, can do is to build a lot of houses and move into them a lot. It is. You'll never understand your product better than when you live in it. Yeah, and you know the other advantage is, in the eyes of the IRS, it's legal to buy a house from your company at cost. Right? You can't make it look like you're taking a loss, but you can buy it at cost. And so you can basically defer a lot of potential gains to your personal tax umbrella, which after two years becomes tax-free. So it's a great way to you know, create wealth for yourself, essentially tax-free by doing that. So yeah, if you're a builder, it's, it really is a no-brainer a lot of times. Yeah, and, I, and I've seen it time and time again. I mean, absolutely, Tucker. To be able to, <laughs> over the course of two years, get half a million dollars tax-free is huge. But beyond that, even just, you know, a good builder, like most good business owners, is constantly, continuously improving, continuously improving. This house we're building today, it's better than the one we built last month or last, you know, three months ago. And to do that, one of the best things a builder can do is move into it, live there, and inevitably there'll be little aha moments like, gosh, I should have put that light switch over here. Or what if this had a dimmer or what, you know, and, and you, you understand your craft and your product far better than you ever would have by sending a survey to some homeowner or by, you know, doing a walkthrough with some homeowner, you know, three weeks after the product's done versus, you know, living there for two years. And along those lines, I will say that applies to realtors as well. I think it's really healthy for a realtor. I talked a little bit at the beginning of this show about the scariness of a transition, right? Putting your house on the market, taking that leap of faith. When my house goes pending, I'm going to go find something. Going through that process, understanding it, having to move, having to get new utilities changed. When you do that, you will be able to explain it to others. You'll be able to relate to it. You'll even be able to innovate a little bit. You'll go, you know, when I did this, I found out that by doing this and this and this and and it's it's a really interesting conversation to be had for those of us who are in the housing industry. The one downside to it is you are constantly transitioning if you're constantly doing that. So you lose a little bit in stability, but I I do think it helps you with your service and product. Oh, I absolutely agree with you. And just, you know, before we jump into the market action report, so for example, the home that we're building right around the corner from this year's Street of Dreams, it's essentially a remake of my house that I'm living in right now. And as you mentioned, you know, there's been a few little tweaks and things that we would change if we built my house again. Well, we're building my house again. We're building it right around the corner from uh, on Noss Road, right around the corner from this last year's Street of Dreams. So we were able to take a lot of those things that weren't like glaring errors or anything like that, but just things that would make it a little bit better and a little mm-hmm. bit better. And so we've been able to integrate those changes into the plans for this new house, and it'll basically be the house I live in 2.0. That'll be that much better. And so uh, you're absolutely exactly. right. Yeah, love it. All right, well, so that's what's going on with me. We uh, hit a couple of rabbit holes there, but I think they were good. We got the market action report. It came out a little early this month, for better or worse, but uh, it came out early. What'd you see? What'd you see inventory-wise, Steve? What do you think? So we're right on this today, by the way. I mean, this literally came into our inbox in the last hour or two. So I'm excited to to have this fresh and something that we're talking about hot off the presses. So... In January, that's what we're looking at here, new listings, a lot of inventory hit the market. 
Now, a lot of it got absorbed. We went from 1.2 months to 1.8 months. That is a pretty significant jump, and it's not surprising. I think that's very typical to the time of year. A lot of people, they were planning to not have their house on the market in December, and then the holidays passed, and they want to get their houses on the market. So we had 22,519 new listings. That was an increase of 63.8% over what was on the market in December. Yeah, that's big. That's That's a big big number. Yeah, but, you know, if you look back... As you said, you know, that increase in inventory is pretty normal, right? From December to January, December 2014 to January 2015, we went from 2.3 months inventory to 3.4 months inventory. Yeah. So it's a normal yeah. jump every year, I think. It, it is. It is. It's still a mind-boggling and impressive figure, but it, it, but it is a normal process. It was the best January ever. We've heard this quite a few times recently. I think we December we heard it for sure, and I think I want to say August we heard it, and then there was a couple months in between where, you know, it wasn't quite the case, but... Yeah, this is saying the best January on record since 1992 when RMLS was formed. A lot of other good good information in here. You know, the appreciation's not out of this world. I think I think it's a sustainable number. I mean, we're seeing appreciation year over year at around 6.7%. Obviously, there's a couple different ways to measure it. On the median, it's 8.1%. But yeah, I I think it's a really healthy report. I think it's a really healthy start to the to the new year. What do you, yeah. about you? What do you think? Yeah, I think that 6.7% really jumped out at me. I'm happy that it's not higher, to be yeah, honest with you. Too. I think that, you know, in years past, 2005, we'd be like, oh, I wish it was at 10%. But, you know, we've, we've all seen the past. We know what happens. So I think that keeping that number, you know, below that 7% mark is good. And it'll help ensure that we have a healthy market moving forward. And it's not a, you know, a kind of a back and forth type market like we've all experienced over the last 10 years. So I think that's great. You know, the new listings did go up by 63.8%, which to some extent is to be expected, like we talked about. Pending sales are now officially less than the new listings. So that's one thing that I look at in terms of forward indicators. I think that we'll probably jump up into maybe the low twos next month for for inventory is my guess based on, you know, uh, new listings outdoing pending sales by a fair bit this past month. So we'll see how that goes. I don't think it's going to be astronomical amount of inventory that we increase to, but maybe 2.2 months, something like that is kind of my guess. Uh, but overall, I think it was you know a great January. Total time on market, it was up from 56 days in December to 57 days in January, so an arbitrary number, you know, one day. I think that uh, days on market are still incredibly low, and uh, I think houses are still selling really fast. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of the same as we've seen in the last couple months, and by the way, same is pretty good right now. <laughs> yeah, and like you mentioned earlier, you know, you had that whole conference on it. People have to buy a home in order to sell a home, right? A lot of times, so you've got that catch twenty two, and I think that it's going to take a while to work that out of the system. You know, you ha- if you sell your house, you have to buy a house, and there's inventory crunch. So I think that catch twenty two is going to hold inventory relatively tight. We're not just going to blow it wide open and jump up to five months worth of inventory. I think it's going to be a slow climb uh, if it does continue to climb. And so, you know, that'll keep the market, it, it, at least keep a pretty strong floor under it, in my opinion. I, I imagine the inventory will continue to grow throughout this year, but it's not going to be a big jump, I don't think. Yeah. Mortgage rates are, are really good right now. I keep seeing emails. I think they're saying they're the best they've been in a year at this point. We had Jeff Waller on the show last week, and I know they're flirting with the mid-threes. Yeah, um, they really good. And with the stock market having as much turmoil as it's had over the last few days, I don't imagine that rates are going to be going up anytime soon, but we'll see. Yeah, neither do I. People are, are parking their money either in 
safety with bonds, which helps mortgage rates, or gold. <laughs> yep. Although I so. think by the end of this year, this is going to be a, a saying. I'm going to call it now that uh, all the financial heads are going to say real estate is the new gold at the end of yeah. the year. But we'll see. There you go. We'll see. There you go. So, but yeah, well, that's pretty much what's going on with the market. Great, great January. I anticipate February's numbers will be uh, really pretty strong as well. And, you know, I'm sure your, your business is going to keep cruising along. And every listing you get, I'm sure, is selling really quick. And it'll continue to as we move through February here. Yeah, I anticipate that as well. Cool. Well, I think we covered a lot of great topics this week. Hopefully, you know, some of them were uh, food for thought for our listeners out there in listener land. There's definitely some, some issues and some things that need to get worked out here in Portland, but I think that uh, the ones that we talked about definitely were deserving of a conversation this week. So thanks for participating with me, Steve. I think we talked about some good stuff. And before we get out of here, any last words of wisdom or anything for our listeners? If interested, again, shoot me an email. We'd love to get you a personal invite to our upcoming team building event, February 24th. My email is steve at nasarteam.com. Look forward to your inquiries and feedback on the show and anything else that interests you. Yeah, and it's free, guys, so go listen to the best in the area for absolutely nothing, and I'm sure they feed you lunch, too, so no reason not to do it. So There you go. All right, guys, well, this is episode 25. We're wrapping up. We'll uh, be back next week. Maybe we can get Joe on, do a Best of Masters. We shall see, but that's kind of the plan for now. So uh, I'm your host, Tucker. This is our co-host, Steve. We're signing off till next week. Thanks again for listening to our show, and make sure to tune in next week for another great episode of the Portland Real Estate Podcast.